The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi there and welcome back to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. This week, Kate Luzio, founder and CEO of Luminary, a professional development and collaboration hub created by and for women. Kate started her career in finance where she rose up the ranks, but saw firsthand how little investment was made to identify and develop female leaders. So, in 2018, she wrote a business plan and launched Luminary, which has grown to include more than 2,000 individual and nearly 50 corporate members, including blue chip names like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan Chase, and MasterCard. Kate spoke to my colleague Matthew Boyle, a senior management and workplace reporter. Here's their conversation. Hi, Kate, and uh, and welcome to Out of Office. Hi, great to be here, Matt. Yeah, so so Kate, you had a very successful career in banking. You you worked around the world for for JP Morgan and HSBC, but then in 2018, you you left it all to start Luminary, and and not only that, you funded it entirely by yourself. I mean, how did that come about? How did you do that, and and why then? Well. You know, I could say it's a very long story. It's actually not one of, I had the really fortunate experience throughout my career in banking. Although I spent a lot of time being the only in the room, I had incredible mentors and sponsors and the majority of them being white males. And one of those amazing white men uh, in my, that I say was always in my corner from JP Morgan had asked me a question as I was thinking about what my next move was going to be within the banking world was, well, what do I want to do with my career? And I had never spent that time thinking about it. It was, I'm a Gen Xer, we've talked about this, uh, and it was, what's the next milestone? What's the next milestone? And he sort of was the one that got it out of me. Where am I finding sort of the excitement in the career? And yes, I love being a banker and love managing teams, but within that, I love developing talent. And I love this idea of looking at within the pipeline versus just going external. I was a great example of, always being poached externally. But when I got to my roles, it was how do we look at all this great talent inside and provide a path for them? And so in that one conversation, sort of two weeks later, I ripped the bandaid off and said, you know, not necessarily I'm going to take a break, but I'm going to think about doing something else and utilize all these amazing skills that I've built through my throughout my 20 plus year career. And six weeks later, wrote a business plan for Luminary that I didn't know that's what I wanted to do. I had just been yet to another women's event, another women's group, all very good, but I wasn't finding the value. And although I was no longer necessarily a woman in the midst, I was, you know, I had a seat at the table. I knew that wasn't the same experience for all women and not just in banking and not just in the firms that I worked for. And when I started talking to other women and certainly outside of the industry that I was in, it was a very similar experience. And that business plan 
turned into, wait a second, I've saved a lot of money through my banking, you know, experience and the bonuses. And I want to really put my money where my mouth is. And I don't want to go out and pitch to investors because I want my idea to really come to fruition in the way that I want to create it. And so decided to self-fund. And eight months later, our physical doors opened here in New York City uh, in the Nomad neighborhood. And our physical doors reopened four months after the pandemic uh, hit us when we were in lockdown. And now we've created both a physical and digital uh, organization that's now in more than 30 countries. So in three years, less than three years, um, it's been an incredible ride. But I credit so much of that, Matt, to all of those years and that experience in my in developing my career in the banking world, learning to run businesses, manage people, run and uh, PLs. And if I hadn't had that, there's no way in my mind for me, I would have been able to launch this business. Yeah. You talked, Kate, about how in banking, a lot of the opportunities were coming to you externally. And it's funny, I just wrote a story about how internal job boards are sorely lacking and really need to be sort of refurbished. And there's a lot of startups using AI to better match candidates and opportunities inside the company so you don't lose them. And of course, losing people is a, a very big topic right now. Um, where do you think companies fall short in terms of talent development? Do they not start it early enough? Do they not have the right tools? Or do they just think that people will go through a progression? If you're in sales, you'll always be in sales. And you, know, you never think about moving them over to like a supply chain job or an HR job. I mean, what's your take on that? I think it's a couple of things. I think it's apt. I think number one, hiring practices have to change, right? The old way of looking at how we hire, both internally and externally, have to change. When you think about, again, it depends how senior the role is, and 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 obviously the the um, the, the size of the role. But if I have to go through twenty interviews and I go through three with a competitor, my hiring practices are not going to work, particularly now in this in this world of the great reexamination or the great resignation, and certainly not for the next generation of the Gen Zers and what comes behind that, right? There's a war for talent, by the way, both internally and externally. So I think a complete revamping of hiring practices and the process needs to be done in most organizations. And the old way is no longer actually gonna work. I think number two, we have to invest in our talent much earlier. We tend to, when we hire, and I can use the experience of the bank, you really focus on that analyst and associate role, you give them a lot of love and attention. There's a lot of opportunities for, for learning and development. Then they go out into the next part of their career, in particular for women and uh, communities of color or underrepresented communities. It's sort of like just, just treading water, right? And it's finding that sponsor and it's finding that mentor. And then once you get a little bit more senior, that love comes back or you're about to walk out the door and now all of a sudden you're top talent. So investing earlier and more often in the pipeline and looking at people's skill sets, right? Women often, and I just use because of my gender, she's just not quite ready yet, has been used way too often in most women's careers, right? Men are normally paid on potential or promoted on potential, and women tend to be promoted or paid on performance. And so I think, again, rethinking what that looks like, lateral opportunities are incredible right? Moving people from one line of business to the other, from back office to front office and vice versa, even into functional roles, you get much more well-rounded employees and 
they now know the institutions better than if they stayed on that linear path. And I think we've got to think outside of the box um, as we think about roles and whether they're people that you want to promote, you're thinking of new, new opportunities within the firm. I think talent sharing has got to be uh, sort of a, a new practice, right? We tend to be protective in our roles as hiring managers and leaders, right? I don't want to lose my good talent, but I also don't want to become the, the poaching ground for other lines of business. So how do we think more broadly about talent share? You know, when you think about the banks and, and those analysts and associate roles, those early stage, they often go through a rotational program. I did, right? So why not think more broadly about those for people that are in the midst of their careers or even at a more senior level that you're trying to get exposure to? And the last thing that, that I would say is just thinking more broadly around people managers, right? In most organizations, the path to promotion is I become a manager. Well, are we equipping those managers with real tools and resources for them to become people managers? Particularly now in what we're seeing and what we've been seeing since the first day of the pandemic, not everyone was equipped to manage people remotely. So what were organizations doing to ensure those people managers had more training and development? Are they trained on communication, tough conversations, 360 feedback? We kind of tend to overlook these things when you're in the machine and there's a lot more that needs to be done for people managers. You mentioned feedback, Kate. I know you've told me before that feedback you think is one of the most poorly utilized skills in management, both how to give it and then how to receive it. It was funny, I just spoke with Hubert Jolie last week uh, for this podcast. And he talked about how he was a horrible, he was horrible at receiving feedback when he was young because he was a high performer. And anybody who told him he wasn't doing something <laughs> something right, he said, well, something's got to be wrong with you, not me. So what's your approach to both giving feedback and, and receiving it? So I think for both sides of the table, it's got to be clear and concise and a plan for follow-up, right? So if I'm an, a manager and I'm giving feedback to my employees, again, clear and concise, don't beat around the bush, whether it's good or bad. The other thing is there should always be strengths and opportunities for development given. You cannot tell even your most talented employee that there's nothing for them to work on. That then gives that problem where then eventually then they don't work on anything and they think that they're the best thing ever. And so they can't receive any new feedback, right? We're always learning. We should always be lifelong learners. And so taking feedback is really important. I think the other thing is for, for both managers and for employees, what is that follow-up, right? If I have received feedback and it's X, Y, Z on things I need to work on, great. Then let's get a regular communication and cadence of communication back to that manager around, okay, I've worked on this or I'm working on this. Have you seen a difference? If it's something more, hey, I asked for a promotion, I asked for a raise. What are those critical milestones? What do I need to meet those? And on both sides, they have to be documented. I've worked for two very large global organizations. One was everything was about 360 feedback and the other was not. And I will tell you that that not creates a culture of exactly what you were talking about. It also creates a culture where managers have the ultimate say. What about stakeholder feedback? What about asking others that are in that sort of your realm of influence for feedback? When it becomes just one-sided, it's not productive. And I think there, 
no matter what, a meritocracy is not created. And there becomes a culture that is created of the haves and the have nots and the favorites. And I just don't think that's productive. And particularly now in the remote world, and many companies are going to always have a remote option. How do you make sure everyone has a fair shot? Definitely. And it's that haves and have nots and that sort of feeling of, you know, not being included or even resentment that's leading just, you know, millions of people, including many women to to leave traditional corporate roles. And some are leaving the workforce entirely, of course, since the start of the pandemic. And you've talked to, to loads of them, Kate, I imagine. What are they telling you about why they're leaving and what things might actually bring them back? So when we when we talk to women that have made the decision. And I think every situation is different, right? Some of those, if they're mother, working mothers, caregivers, right? Their situation and their environment is very different than someone else that just made it because there's no longer boundaries within their work, uh, their work day. What we're hearing now is I start at 7am, I get on Zooms and I don't finish until the end of the day. And then I stay on my computer because I'm no longer in an office. There's no boundaries. Um, And that has become a major issue for most people. I think women in particular, I think there's also still for women, I need to get exposure, I need visibility, et cetera. So if I'm in a corporate environment and I'm not getting any of that, I'm also not getting flexibility. I'm being told to come back. I don't have childcare or elder care solutions. What do I do? So some of this is by necessity, I've had to leave or I've had to cut back my hours. Then when we look at that population, we have to remember on both sides of the table, the individual that's left, the statistic is if I've left the workforce for more than a year and try to come back, again, traditional workforce, my salary has decreased around 40%. So my earnings potential now is back from when, you know, again, a few jobs ago. Uh, And I think women in particular have to really think about when they cut that cord, what's the next step? I'm just leaving or I can't take it anymore. Um, I think on the employer side, getting people to come back is going to be very difficult if they haven't looked at what they're doing, not just flexibility, right? I think that's one word we hear a lot. There's a lot more to flexibility than just being able to work from home. I think you also see a population that of Women saying, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I don't feel like my employer or my manager or my boss is listening to me or what I need. And I am going to cut the cord and I'm either going to go to a new industry, go to do something completely different, or I'm going to go and figure it out. Then you have a whole other population that says, I've had this business idea in mind for a while. I never thought I could do this. I'm going to cut the cord and I'm going to do it. So In each of those populations, and there are obviously many more examples, we have to find a support system to support those women in their journey and what's next. Small business owners, we know more than 70% of them self-fund and bootstrap. So how are we supporting them? We know those women that are sort of in transition, they can't lose access to their networks. They can't lose access to introductions and door openers, and they have to continue to hone their skills. And then third, that population that just says, I don't know if I can do it with my boss anymore. I'm just quitting. What are those longer term ramifications, not just for that individual, but for the workforce in general? I've said this since I left my career in banking. Not everyone can leave and start their own business. 
we need to keep women in the traditional workforce. But if we're going to do that, it goes back to just what we talked about before. We need to invest in them earlier. We need to focus on training and leadership development. We need to focus on people management. And we need to think about them much more holistically than we have in the past as just a cog in the wheel. What are their situations? Um, how do we support those situations so they don't walk out the door? Okay. And I mean, and this is a reason I mean, talk about the group that went off to uh, start their own businesses. Um, I, I saw a, a very disconcerting statistic just this morning. Uh, companies founded solely by women in the US raised just 2% of total venture capital funding last year. And I imagine this is something that sparked you to create your fellowship program, I think in 2020, where you bring women-owned businesses, education, tools, and, and coaching, and you've got partnerships with Unilever, Verizon, and some other corporates. Um, what's the latest on your fellowship program? I mean, what's worked and what hasn't? And how difficult has it been to get them, the women-owned businesses, the funding that they need? So first and foremost, you know, we've got, as you mentioned, we've got incredible partners that are not only putting money behind these fellowships, they're putting education and access to resources that they're providing small businesses that not everybody knows what they do, right? If you take a UBS or a Verizon or a Unilever, how are we helping them? I think what's come out of this first year and now we're in the second year with about a thousand more women-owned businesses and job seekers as well, uh, is that community resources door openers as well as fuel to spend are equally as important as funding and capital. And I think the, the funding and capital conversation really has to be um, carved up. That 2% of, of women-owned businesses that receive venture capital must grow. And just like everything else in this world, we have to get to parity. However, not every business needs to, nor should they go after external or particularly venture capital funding. There's a very small percentage of companies, whether they're run by men or women, that need or should go after venture capital. Number two, you better know what you're going to do with that money and what that means, because now you've just got on a bicycle or you're continuing to raise money. The second is, as I mentioned earlier, now, more than 70% of women-owned businesses self-fund or bootstrap their business. Some of that's out of necessity. Some of that's out of, I want control. I want to own this. I want to create a legacy. How do you then provide financial instruments to help them build their business, whether that's through banks, whether that's through grants, whether that's through crowdfunding and other, other mechanisms. So giving our fellows access to all of these tools and the education around them so that they can make informed decisions is first and foremost. Every time you take money, we know this, you buy a car, you buy a house, there is a string attached. If you need money to run, operate, grow, scale your business, you better understand what those strings are and the different, again, mechanisms around what, those, what strings to pull around how you build a business. Um, you know, business boot camps we teach. We teach um, the, act, how to, the power of capital and what that means to your company. Fuel to spend. I would argue is even a bigger issue for women-owned businesses than, than accessing capital. You have to get customers to buy your products and services. Okay, chicken and the egg, you may not have thousands of dollars a month to spend on paid social ads or marketing or a CMO. So how do you think strategically about customer acquisition, strategic selling, partnerships, collaboration, and a lot of what we teach is around, again, fuel to spend, 
And then combining that with, here's a community that's supporting, here are you know, marketplaces you can leverage, here are resources and other types of act, uh, education, social media, marketing, operating plans. We forget because we're in these giant companies, you yourself at Bloomberg, I, JP Morgan, HSBC, Bank of America, you forget the infrastructure that is behind you to run just your job. So from a business owner, it's really providing them access to all of these tools and resources. And then we leverage our partners and those fellows to bring in specialized subject matter experts to teach as well. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It's been interesting how the advice that people have been seeking has, has evolved during the, the, the pandemic, of course. And yeah, I think you told me early on, or, you know, the early months of the pandemic, it was all about visibility. You know, does my boss know what the heck I'm doing when now that we're all remote? And then it shifted more into mental health and, and wellness as burnout became a big problem. And now as we move into the third year of the pandemic, Kate, what are women asking about now? I think a big one, and, and we can break this out into a couple of things, is negotiation. So negotiation, we tend to think of it in, I'm negotiating for my next job or my next salary. There's so much more within the world of negotiation. It's negotiating for flexibility, depending on your situation. It's negotiating if you need to actually return to an office. It's negotiation around childcare. Uh, what are companies doing around subsidized childcare and what are those plans? So there's a big um, request from us, uh, from a lot of our corporate members and the women that are in the traditional workforce asking us for more tips and how to negotiate. I think the other thing, it goes back to the long lasting problem of visibility and exposure. You know, we just, as women, as our gender and underrepresented communities, very similar, just don't have the exposure and the visibilities that our, our white male counterparts have. And that's, that's historical, that's societal, that's built over years and years. That's not just a, a new problem. And, but we can't get anywhere unless we start working in conjunction with men around building up that visibility and exposure. And it's why, as you know, Matt, that we have always wanted men, we've welcomed men, we work with men because we have to do this together. Um, and I think the other thing that I'm, I, I don't know if it's surprising to me or maybe because I've been doing this so long and, and I have a long career is still confidence, right? Confidence to go in and negotiate, confidence to manage a team, confidence to ask for the next role. So this idea of um, really promotion and advocating for yourself versus always advocating for others. And then the last thing is still virtual networking and relationship building. You would think we're you know, well into two years into this that it would be sort of old hat for most people, but it's not. 
uh, it is still how do I connect in a virtual world, whether that's my boss, a coworker, a stakeholder, someone that's on my team. Um, this idea of virtual networking seems maybe easy for many of us, or now we've gotten used to the Zoom screens, but it's still not necessarily as effective for everyone. So how do you continue to utilize virtual networking in building relationships? And by the way, newsflash, it's never going away because our work has changed dramatically. No one will ever go into an office five days a week, I don't think ever again. So get used to the Zoom screens because you're gonna be using it for building your own brand, your relationships, your companies, that's the way of the future. Yeah, so talk to me about how should women promote themselves in a more virtual environment? How are the tactics different from being face-to-face -face, uh, with, with a boss and, and, and with colleagues? So I think a couple of kind of unique ways is when you're in a meeting in, in internally, right? You may not, you, I mean, again, unless you're in a very small company, I mean, I used to working at the companies that I did, you always joined meetings and didn't, you're like, oh, I never met you in person. I've seen your name on email. Take the time even in the chat where a private DM within the chat to introduce yourself, what you do, you know, what your role is, how long you've been in the company. It's a great, easy way to sort of get to know someone. The other thing is take advantage of more one-on-ones than less with your boss. In the old days, I'm using air quotes, you know, you'd have to go into your boss's office. Maybe it would be a half an hour, maybe an hour. Now you could say, hey, Matt, I need you for five minutes. I just want to give you an update on what I've been working on. Or I need you for five minutes because I want to ask your opinion on something. Or I need five minutes because I, I really have a great idea and a solution to a problem the team has been facing. Great snackable, digestible moments that you could have with your boss. Uh, and the other thing is follow-up, 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 right? Whether you're in a virtual world or an in-person world. In order to promote authentically, you need to actually make sure your boss, your manager is aware of what you're doing. So whether that's a bi-weekly, hey, here are a couple of things I've worked on, here are my accomplishments. It's not bragging if it's based on fact, right? And other people are promoting themselves, why shouldn't you? Uh, and the last thing that I would say is every time you walk into a meeting, don't let it be the first thing where you're automatically starting to promote the, someone else. Think about how you can talk about and advocate for yourself in addition to others. Um, and I just don't see that happening. I mean, I'm amazed. We work with so many corporate members as well as women in the traditional workforce at Luminary. And when we host these sessions and these workshops, when it's not just junior women, it is all the way up to the senior ranks, CHROs, chief people officers, chief revenue officers saying, I'm not that great at you know, promoting myself or advocating for myself. Well, you better because you know the next big role that comes around or that next big opportunity, your boss, and by the way, in a matrix world and an organization, everyone needs to know what you're doing. So that we're spending a lot of time, I think because of the virtual world, um, and I'm not seeing someone every day in an office on um, on that promotion and self-advocacy. Yeah. When you don't see people every day in an office, I mean, there's research out there that says that uh, particularly um, people of color prefer remote work in many ways because they're not subject to the daily microaggressions that they experienced in traditional office life. Have you spoken to women, particularly minority women who, who face that? Is, is that? is that a thing? It is a huge thing. Um, I remember last February, February 2021, in our digital 
uh, being a black woman in corporate America was part of our programming for Black History Month. We'll do that again starting the first week of February. The eye-opening remarks, I think that both from a per person of color that was sitting in, their, in, in that digital room to anyone else that had never been in those shoes around code switching, around microaggressions, around everything that they face that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been able to recognize. So I think it is a huge issue. I think what I've seen, which is I think, I think incredibly motivating and inspiring over this past year, is the amount of movement in the corporate world of new opportunities for people of color. And you're seeing that not only in heads of DEI, but much bigger roles in running businesses, board roles. Uh, but as, a, as an organization that runs a, both a physical community and now a global community in more than 30 countries, more than 40% of our members, Matt, are women of color. So we get the opportunity every day to ask them those questions. And I think companies, small, medium, and large, have to provide brave spaces for those conversations to be had and not in an echo chamber, right? Historically, what has tended to happen is, and this happens in every organization, the Women's Network, the Black Network, the Pride Network. And so you're all saying the same thing because yes, you have an affinity. You, you, you're part of that group for a reason. Now we've really got to force almost to an extent allyship and bringing other representation, other gender into those conversations so that real change can happen. And, and I think that is what leaders should start be holding accountable for is creating these rooms, these tables, these spaces for real conversation to happen so that real change can happen. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about remote work um in this conversation kate but i mean i think for a majority of, of workers it's not going to be fully remote or fully in the office it'll be some type of hybrid arrangement so when you do return to the office and i know a lot of those returns have been delayed first by delta and now by omicron but let's say you're in the office part-time like a lot of people might be in the coming months how do you maximize that time I mean, what's worked for you individually and what do you think will work uh you know for most women so I, I think, you know, we, and we've seen some of our, our corporate partners and members really thinking through, number one, you don't have to set a policy in place that's going to last forever, right? There's a lot of a, what we call A-B testing or trial and error that can happen. Let's see what happens in a quarter. Let's see what works and what doesn't and actually get feedback from our employees. I think um, some of the things that we've seen working is instead of having you come in Tuesday and I come in Wednesday and someone comes in Thursday is really packing in those team meetings on the days when people are can come in. So if I'm saying Tuesday, Wednesdays are days in the office, then really pack those team meetings in. So you're having that ideation and that collaboration in an office environment. Obviously there will likely be people that join remotely. Also giving those remote people the opportunity to speak first. I see. When you're, in an, when you're in an office, you're sitting around a conference room, oftentimes whoever's sitting, and this happened well before remote yeah. work, right? We sit on WebExes and, and telepresence, and the people on the screen were always the last to speak. So give those individuals the first opportunity to speak. When there is a question posed to the audience or the who's ever sitting in the meeting, ask the people that are on that screen to speak first or if they have comments first. Little things like that can go a long way at making sure all voices are recognized. 
And the other thing is, as I said, if you can get people, even if it's one day a week, that everyone's in that office at the same time, is ensure you're having a team meeting. Ensure you as a manager are doing as many one-on-ones as you possibly can in person. Obviously, health and safety is first and foremost, but that in-person connection can go a long way. And making sure that that next one-on-one, even if it's the five-minute Zoom or phone call, we have to remember phones. I think you and I talked about this when we first had a conversation. Phones still exist. It doesn't always have to be a Zoom. So pick up the phone and just check in on someone. We do it with our friends. Why can't we do that with our employees? It was so funny. I was, a PR person asked me the other day, you know, well, uh, I know you get so many emails. How do I get your attention? And I said, why don't you pick up the phone and call me? You know, <laughs> um, so the I mean, the intricacies of hybrid work and and uh, this new frontier we're facing. I mean, it's really putting a lot of pressure on, on HR officers. I know you talk to a lot of chief HR officers, uh, many of them uh, women, and it's clear that this position is under unprecedented stress from the pandemic. You know, they don't just have to think about training and development and hiring. They have to think about HVAC systems and, <laughs> and office ventilation and ever-changing COVID policies. And how do we deal with that remote employee who wants to move to, you know, Boulder and we don't have an office there? Um, I mean, do you think that some women in these roles those who really rise to the occasion and become, you know, sort of true strategic partners with the CEOs and the C-suite. Do you think some of them could rise to become CEOs themselves? Because I think both of us know the HR function is not a typical path to the CEO uh, position, but, but why not? Well, I absolutely do. First of all, I think the HR, the, the CHRO, even the chief, chief people officer role has changed dramatically in the past uh, in, in the past two years. And um, I mean, we're seeing it. We're seeing the former CHRO of Unilever now becoming the CEO of Chanel. Uh, that's a great example. She spent 30 years at Unilever in various, for the, for the most part, HR roles, but she really understood the intricacy of the organization. She worked with lines of business. She worked with DEI. She worked with you know uh, the functions. So she understands. And obviously, reporting directly to the CEO, you learn so much. Um, I think that that's actually a unique opportunity that's coming out of the pandemic. The CHRO role, whatever you want to call it, has become so important. It can no longer report into operations. It should report directly into the CEO. And I would argue even the heads of DEI and some organizations should no longer report into the CHRO. They should be reporting directly into the CEO. The broad skills that a CHRO role, and not for everyone, I think, though, in this, this, this experience, like you mentioned, operations, right? The CHRO was no longer, it was no longer just the COO and, and facilities. The CHRO is part of that. Um, figuring out what it looks like for remote office and hybrid, figuring out process, no longer just hiring. These are so under, underestimated uh, skills that I think every CEO has to have. Um, and like I said, we're seeing it with the, the Unilever, former Unilever CHRO moving into the, C, the Chanel CEO role. I think that's a signal to the market too, two very different industries. I mean, yes, there's still CPG, Chanel's luxury goods as well, but I think this is actually a really unique opportunity for chief people officers and CHROs to really step up and see yeah. can they take that on. 
I think about Mary Barra at GM also worked mm -hmm. in, in HR exactly. for some time. So I, I bring her up because today there is some news that my former colleague at, at uh, Fortune Magazine, Patty Sellers, has created this new nonprofit group called Journey, which which is looking to address the pyramid effect where the share of women shrinks as they rise up the corporate ranks, something you're very familiar with. But this new group is gonna connect 25 fellows with 25 influential female executives, including Mary uh, of General Motors. What do you make of these efforts? I think you told me earlier that you're not a huge fan of, of formalized mentorship programs. Do you, do you think, you know, do you think this will work? I, listen, I think that when you have the involvement of uh, people like a Mary Barra, right, who gets it, I think she's there for a reason. And whoever she mentors, she's going to make it work. Uh, I think it's a little bit harder when there are formal mentoring programs within an organization because you really need to understand what's the win-win for both sides. Uh, you also need to understand that Mentoring is very much a chemistry-driven uh, relationship, and it's a true relationship. Mentees need to go into these situations thinking it's not just about them, and they've been assigned a mentor, and that they're just going to take, take, take. Um, it is a two-way street. It is a reciprocal relationship. So if you can create mentoring programs with rules and guardrails around that, and everyone agrees to it, terrific. Uh, I think also the mentor word gets thrown around a lot. Uh, I think we have forgotten there's also the concept of peer mentorship and reverse mentorship. A lot of mentorship happens organically if you just put the right people in a room. Um, and some of that organically happens between two individuals. None of my mentors in my career, with the exception of one, um, were in a formalized mentoring program. Uh, it was, I created, we created relationships um, and there was a give and take. And I think that's why those mentors that I no longer in banking, even though they're all still in banking, I still consider them mentors and I still have relationships with them because they can be lifelong. Um, in a situation like this, without knowing the full background, I think you've got 25 incredible leaders that are saying we need to, I personally need to do more and they understand that it could be game-changing for that mentee. Um, equally, the mentee needs that, you know, rules and regulations or roles and responsibilities and guardrails around what this can look like. But really, you know, I'm a big believer in reciprocity and the idea that all relationships, mentors, sponsorship, et cetera, they are a two-way street and you get out of them what you put into them. So if you're there for the wrong reasons, I just don't think it works. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. What's the best piece of advice you ever you've ever received, Kate, from, from a mentor, from a manager, from from your mom? Doesn't matter. I'd love to know um, the best piece of advice you ever got and, and who gave it to you. You know, I I have had such good advice from, you know, incredible 
from mentors and sponsors. I think the biggest thing that, that I go back to time and time again is don't second guess yourself. Um, if you're prepared, if you know you're, you know, if you know what you're talking about, if you've got it down pat, don't second guess yourself. And oftentimes I do think women, um, and I'm just speaking on behalf of myself as a gender, uh, we do second guess ourselves. And so this idea goes back to the confidence building, the self-promotion, the self-advocacy, don't second guess yourself. Uh, and I've heard that, you know, from many, many of my mentors um, that have observed me over years and years as I've built my career. Um, and by the way, not every piece of advice your mentor or your sponsors gives you is going to be advice that you're going to take, but the, you really have to be opening to listen and open to change. Uh, so that second guessing thing as a, is, I think is for me, has been a big piece. Okay. As a business owner as well, right? That's carried yeah. well into my entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Well, it, it's bonus season, Kate. And, and you mentioned negotiation <laughs> earlier, how important negotiation is. I think you made a good point that it's not just about getting your next job or, or a pay raise. It could be about flexible work or making sure you have time off to, to care for a, a child or, a, you know, or an, or an elder care situation. How is, how is negotiating for those types of things though different from negotiating just a hard straight ahead this is the bonus i want and and you know this is what i did last year i mean how do those negotiating tactics differ or maybe how are they the same yeah you know i i think being black and white it's the same right it's the same as if you are a child and you're negotiating with your parent about going somewhere or you're wanting to spend time with someone or asking for something um, in particular for a certain occasion. You're negotiating, right? Um, don't manipulate, really negotiate. Build your business case uh, and your reasons why, not that you need something, why you deserve it, right? We often get confused between, I need this because I need the next big thing, I need to buy a house, I need to get, no, 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 no. Build the business case around why you deserve that. Um, own that ask um, and put the, um, put the I would call it ammunition behind that ask, whether that's a raise, you better know your number. What is your number? Um, and what is the number you can get comfortable with if it's not ultimately the number that you want? Um, and that's whether you're in, you know, internally negotiating with your boss, if you're negotiating for a new role, if you're negotiating for, for raising money, right? What's your drop dead number? I think if you're negotiating for other benefits around flexibility and, and return to the office and, and work from home, and I want to live in Boulder, but my job is technically in New York, build your business case around why it will work and why it will benefit not only you, but your boss or your manager and that organization. It's really hard to say no when you've built those business cases. And that's how I think of everything whether I'm talking to, in my former life, my manager, clients, even people um, that work for me, all the way to negotiating now with our corporate members and fellows and thinking about everything else we're doing as a small business. Okay. And I know you do a lot of roundtables with big companies, um, Kate. Are the themes of those uh, changing much as, as we get into uh, 2022? I know some of them are constant, some are what we call evergreen uh, topics, but um, what new topics are maybe creeping up or coming more to the forefront uh, as you uh, counsel them these days? I think the big thing that keeps coming up and we're hosting a roundtable uh, this week on it is around accelerated hiring. Uh, and accelerated hiring, 
Yeah. Uh, on, yeah. So on both sides. So how do I get someone, a candidate in the seat faster, right? Kind of what I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, it used to take 10, 12, 20 interviews to bring in that candidate. Let's actually shrink that down as we look at our hiring practices. Does it really need, do you really need 10 people to interview them? Could it be the three most important stakeholders and make a decision? What we're tending to hear from big companies in particular is I have these HR practices that are very old. And by the time I've gotten to the offer stage, that person's already accepted another offer because someone went faster, right? They had less of a process. It was less cumbersome. So accelerated hiring on the employer side. And then on the employee side is I want this job. This is what it's going to take for you to hire me. So we hear a lot that the, the control now is in the job seekers hands. Yes and no. I still know there are a lot of job seekers out there. Um, but thinking about what's important to you. So one of the biggest things that we're hearing is the questions that are being asked in the interview process now. In the old days, it used to be the employer asks and sort of by being nice, do you have any questions for me, Matt? Uh, now it's yes, here is my list of questions. Here's what I want out of this role. Are you offering X? So these job seekers are coming very prepared in not only comp, but what is your culture like? What is your you know, office environment? How are you thinking about hybrid and not accepting roles when all those boxes aren't checked? So this accelerated hiring um, is on both sides. And I think goes back to, again, historical hiring processes for many companies have to change. Yes. They just have to. Yeah. How... You, you mentioned bringing questions, the interviewee, uh, the job seeker coming armed with questions. And as a reporter, I would certainly agree with that. You always want to do that. But can that, how do you make sure you, you're asking the smart questions, but, but maybe without coming off as a bit too, I don't know, aggressive or demanding too much? I know, as you say, there is more power in the job seeker's hands right now. Um, and not just for white collar jobs, I think for blue collar jobs as well. Um, but, you know, any tips on terms of, you know, how many, you know, how far should you go with, with those questions? Certainly you want to know about, like, you know, a hybrid work plan and, you know, time off and things like that. But, um, you know, what would you counsel in terms of how far to push those questions as a job seeker? You know, I, I think the word demanding is probably not the right word uh, because that, I, I, when one, when either party demands, I don't think it's a, a recipe for a, a good partnership and good working relationship in the future. I think there has to be a give and take. If you're the job seeker, again, numbers wise, what are you willing to take? Right now, it's becoming even more transparent in some situations in some states, right, around salary ranges. So you should know going in, what's your number? Um, when you're asking about, you know, the different flexibility options, benefits, amenities to the job, you know, I've counseled my nephew on this. You know, are they providing, are they paying for internet since you're going to be 99% work from home? Are they paying for your phone? Things like that. Things like we often think of total comp as in for many industries, my salary and my bonus, if there's a bonus component. Okay. What does that mean? Ask those questions. What, how, what does my healthcare look like? What's included in my insurance? Um, I've heard a lot. Pet care is pet yeah. care included, right? Um, so ask those questions. Be an informed job seeker as well. Don't just wait for that offer letter. Um, and I think, again, if this is a company that you really think, you better know a lot about them. You better know about the management. You better do your due diligence on the culture. Ask around. 
look on different sites. Um, because it's not just about the job and it's not just about the compensation, it's about the culture. And I think over the last two years, you know, talking about what companies are talking to us about is this shift in understanding culture. Anecdotally, giving you one example from a small business side, it's not just the large businesses. We were recently hiring a programming associate and the majority of her questions when I finally interviewed her throughout my, the rest of my team was around representation not just representation on the staff, but representation within the community, representation on the, with the, within the programming, and if we were really practicing what we were preaching as an organization. And I thought that was not only bold, but they were the right questions to ask the CEO and the founder. So um, you never know. I think it's got to be a great working relationship. You don't want to work for someone that you're not going to respect. An employer doesn't want to hire someone that it's going to leave within the first, you know, six months to a year. So there's yeah. got to be a win-win. I don't, yeah, I think, I mean, things like representation, Kate, I don't think either, either that, that word wouldn't have crossed our minds, you know, in our first uh, job interview Ever. Than, Ever. or anyone really, but it, it's great that they're they're being asked now. Uh, well, Kate, thank you so much for your time today with us here on, on Out of Office. I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise, thanks for having me. That was my colleague, Matt Boyle, in conversation with Kate Luzio, the founder and CEO of Luminary. What an incredible woman and incredible entrepreneur. I love that chat and I hope you did too. This podcast was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. I'm Malika Kapoor. Stay well. And as always, thank you for listening. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.